Open the Word of God this morning to Numbers chapter 23, where we'll find some of the prophecies of Balaam. Numbers chapter 23. One score and 18 years ago, our father brought forth in the Piedmont of the upstate a church, and we are thankful for it. Amen. You just sang that the house of the Lord is your great delight. Amen. And the temple of the Lord is your great delight in the place where you want to be more than any place else. There are houses of God described in the Bible. And you, I have been through the list with you before and we'll come back to it maybe in the time that we have. Jacob poured oil on some stones that he had slept on the previous night because God had revealed himself to him during that night with a dream and a vision of a ladder all the way to heaven and angels ascending and descending, meaning traveling back and forth between God's presence and Jacob. And he called the place Bethel. Beth for house, El for Elohim, the house of God. He called it that. And what a pitiful house that was. Stones with oil on it. And look what we have. So much better and so much greater. And what kind of a revelation? We don't have some obscure ladder with angels ascending and descending. We have 66 book library Amen. with a complete right. revelation of everything to make the man of God perfect. Amen. Truly furnished unto all good works. We are blessed. Amen. Numbers chapter 23. Balaam tried four times to make Balak, king of Moab, happy and to earn a paycheck because Balak wanted this false prophet to curse Israel. And to, together, they tried four different times. And so there's four curses that turn into blessings. Right. And the blessings are great prophecies that Balaam uttered. We only want number two of the four today for the text that the Lord's given us before and given us again for today's theme. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 23 is our text. Numbers 23, 23. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel... What hath God wrought? Balak hired Balaam to use enchantments and divination against Israel. Enchantments and divination are synonyms for sorcery and witchcraft to curse that nation with the powers of darkness. But what is Balaam's answer from the Lord? Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. Right. The powers of darkness lose against the church of God. Amen. And we have a hedge about us to protect us like God had a hedge around Job, except our hedge is much better. Our hedge involves the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection at the right hand of God when Satan was cast out of heaven. Satan was alive and doing well in heaven in Job's day, 
but not in our day. He's been cast down according to Revelation chapter 12 and John chapter 12. Today we celebrate our church's 38th anniversary, one score and 18 years ago. God has done great things with us, in us, and for us. We do not celebrate our history by showing slides of buildings, pastors, and weddings, or by statistical history. That might amuse and and satisfy others, but not us. A church is a group of believers tied together by God's grace, the Spirit's work, and Christ's headship. It's an incredible thing. A church is compared to stones in a temple and to body parts of a body under Christ its head and motivated and energized by His Spirit. Three years ago, we celebrated our 35th anniversary by a detailed history of doctrinal changes by the grace of God. But a church is not a body of doctrine. That's called a systematic theology. A church is not a body of doctrine. It is a group of people with one head and one spirit directing. We have 111 members as of today, all 18 years of age and over. There's another doctrine the Lord's helped us with in the last few years to quit pretending we're infant sprinklers like most Baptists and baptizing little children that don't have a clue about discipleship. They may be able to spell the word Jesus, but they don't know what discipleship is because a child has never been tempted with the real temptations of youth. David and Paul, referring to Timothy, talked about the sins of our youth. It's not the sins of childhood. Children don't know what temptation is until they've added a few years, but God's been gracious to us and shown us that point of doctrine. But we have 111 members. So we have a body with 111 body parts. We have a temple with 111 stones as of today. And it's all by God's marvelous grace and his providence of leading each member to us. God has done great things calling each of us out of this world to love his son and to unite us as one in this church. Love of Christ and love of others is the measure of a church, not doctrine. The Ephesians had fabulous doctrine. Go read it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But they had lost their first love and they were going to lose their candlestick. So though they had the doctrine, and though they tried those that said they were apostles and found them liars, it wasn't good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had lost their first love, which we just prayed this morning that we would keep and revive and have even increased and strengthened in us. The love of others makes everything perfect. Doctrine without loving others is worthless tripe. Go read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. For if we understood all doctrine, and we understood all mysteries, and we could prophesy everything, and we could speak in the tongues of angels, and we gave our bodies to be burned, but we don't know how to forgive, love, care for, show kindness, mercy, forbear, and believe all things of all our brethren, it's all worthless tripe. Love is the great measure of a church. Jesus Christ said, By love all men shall know that ye are my disciples. You know, we had Psalm 126 earlier this morning. And when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, the nations knew. When God delivered Israel out of Babylon, the nations knew. How do nations know about us being the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not by a body of doctrine. By the love we have one to another. 
along with that doctrine. Doctrine without the love is worthless. Love without the doctrine is vain. Love with the doctrine is the wonderful combination God's led us to esteem and stress in our church. Thank you, Lord, for that. Doctrine is tapestries that decorate the temple, but it's not the temple. Doctrine is books in the library of the temple for faith, worship, and our growth. Christianity in our local church is a team sport. Christianity and a local church are team sports with no place for individual isolation or withdrawal. It is Catholic monasticism to think you can attend, listen to a homily, take communion, and go home. That's Roman Catholicism. They wander in, get a little water from the little bowl there, cross themselves, genuflect, take a seat, pop the prayer rail, kneel down, hear a homily, have Jesus stuck in their mouth, swallow him, and go home. Golf, turn the television on, go to work, because they've done their religious thing. That isn't New Testament Christianity at all. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from such a ridiculous concept. Foolish concept, worldly concept, Roman concept. By God's grace, a brother chose Psalm 40 this morning for us, and he chose it six weeks ago without regard to what was going to happen today. It's all by God's grace. I only know the psalm that you're going to hear on a Sunday morning, a tithe of the time, one out of ten. I don't ask. I want the Lord to surprise me. I want the young man that has worked up the psalm to surprise me. But yesterday, in all of my wisdom, I called the brother and said, I need to know. (laughs) Would you mind if I postponed you a week? Then he told me. And I said, you've made my dilemma so much more difficult. You are on for tomorrow because Psalm 40 is perfect. The Lord pulled us out of a horrible pit individually and religiously and church-wise and established our goings and put our feet on a rock and a song in our mouth and it's praise to our God. He's done that. Psalm 40 was perfect. I want you to see and appreciate the Lord directing things for us. We're going to use the next service to testify of God's individual grace and praise Him in our lives. My opening text was Numbers 23 and 23. As Balaam concludes his prophecy number two, there's one more verse, but look at the exclamation point at the end of verse 23. Those four words, what hath God wrought, there should be no question in your mind that they are a question. They're an exclamation. What hath God wrought? Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob. Balak? I can't do anything against Jacob. Balak, I can't do anything against Israel. According to this time, Balak, mark your calendar. Pull your day timer out. You don't use those anymore, do you? Pull out your your smartphone, Balak, and mark it down. From this day forward, when you look at this nation, there's only four words to answer it. What hath God wrought? And to wrought is to work, as we'll see in just a moment. Let's go back and look at the context of this second prophecy. Verse 18. Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. 
In the second prophecy, uh, Balaam turns from speaking in general to speaking directly to Balak. It's precious as Balaam rebukes and corrects Balak. As Balaam corrects Balak. Rise up, Balak, and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. When God promises or speaks, no alteration of circumstances affects him, as we're about to read in verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? What God has said about these people can't be reversed, can't be undone. God doesn't lie. God doesn't repent. Didn't we hear that on Wednesday evening? The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we have it here. God is not a man. Everyone you've ever known, Balak, is a liar. They say one thing and do another. They can repent. They can change their mind and reverse what they were going to do. But God, the God of Israel, is not like that. He, when he says something, he's going to do it. When he speaks, he'll make it good. So it's, it's too bad. So son of Zipper, listen to me. I have some things to say on behalf of Jacob and Israel. Verse 20. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. This is all a vain show, but let me keep talking because I have a few things for you to hear. And this goes on four different occasions in four different places with multiplied sacrifices and altars being built to no avail except wonderful prophecies that we should appreciate. And it was just three and a half weeks ago when we went over Balaam by slides and those prophecies in germ form. There's a 12-page outline with all the details on our website. Verse 20, Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. Verse 21, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Amen. Look at that verse. Look at how Balaam under inspiration, describes God's view of his church versus other nations. Are you kidding me? He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob? Did he behold iniquity in Jacob? Of course he did. What had happened before this? Forty years of wandering for what? Their goodness? Forty years of wandering for their iniquity. But how did God deal with their iniquity? He chastened them in love and beheld it totally different from the nations around him that he wanted annihilated from the oldest to the youngest. Totally different. It's like at Corinth when Paul said, there are many of you that are weak and sickly and many of you sleep because God is chastening you that you will not be condemned with the world. What a difference God makes. He comes after us and chastens us and views our iniquities in a very different light so that Samson can make the hall of faith, so that David can make the hall of faith, so that Gideon can make the hall of faith, so that Jephthah can make the hall of faith, so Abraham can make the hall of faith, so Sarah can make the hall of faith. 
This is beautiful. Oh, Balak got more than he bargained for. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. God looks upon us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, covering us up in white linen, called the righteousness of saints. It's the righteousness put upon saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know we can understand those words better than Israel could have understood them. The Lord his God is with him. Is the Lord our God with us? He's not only with us, because we have a super advantage of being in the New Testament. He's in us. According to the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's in us, not just with us. The apostles had been with the Holy Spirit, but they hadn't had the Holy Spirit in them, as we've learned in John chapter 14. And the shout of a king is among them. (laughs) The shout of a king. Uh, Balak, you think this nation doesn't really have an administration because it doesn't have a king. All they've got is Moses the prophet being a judge. There's a shout of a king among them. There's There's a king coming. Balak, do you know that king? It's the Lord Jesus Christ and its ultimate fulfillment. Was it David? Sure, it could have been David. Did David put a whipping on the Moabites? He absolutely did. But did the Lord Jesus Christ put one on them? Oh, yes. There's a shout of a king among us. I just hope that today there'll be a little shouting. I don't need it. But you know, when we get to the second service, this place better light up. Or you have a spiritual problem and you don't know how to be a Christian. Because in 1 Corinthians 14, 16, the Apostle Paul assumes that when a man gives a blessing, you say amen. Amen. That's why he didn't want public speaking in tongues. Because a person that didn't know the language wouldn't know when to shout amen. (laughs) Thank you, brother. Did you hear? It's not hard. Jim will say the same thing. It's not hard. And it's not for me. It's for the Lord. And it's for each of the men that are going to get up. Because the Gadarene went out and told his friends what great things the Lord had done for him. And do you know what it says? All men did marvel. And when you're marveling about something, you are noisy. And then the, the Apostle Paul in the last verse of Galatians 1 said, And they all glorified God in me. And so we're going to glorify God by hearing some praise in the second service. Verse 21 is beautiful, and we do have a shout of a king among us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. God brought them out of Egypt. Balak, Egypt was far stronger than Moab. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. I don't care if you want to make the unicorn a myth, mythological, a dragon, a creature with one super snout and strength, or a rhinoceros. It doesn't matter. It's something with great strength. And Balak, he overthrew Egypt for the sake of these people. Now, Balak, the Philistines are going to remember this several hundred years later. But you're only a couple decades removed from the event. Do you remember what God did to Egypt in bringing Israel out of Egypt? What do you think you're going to do against them? And then we have our text. Surely there is no enchantment. I can't touch them, Balak. Neither is there divination against them. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? That's what we should be saying of ourselves. And so it's our theme for what the Lord has done for us. 
There is no power in hell or the prince of darkness to hinder our final victory with the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. He saved each of us and united us together. And so we ought to say, what hath God wrought? The goal for my sermon is to teach you and remind you that a church is a group or congregation of individuals tied together by the Spirit of God. Consider our local church as a temple. There's a temple in Salt Lake City. This is more beautiful. The Bible says this is the temple of the living God. Formed by stones, he prepared and set himself. We'll also consider our church as a body. It's the body of Christ with each of the 111 members being members of a body because that metaphor is used in the Bible as well. Rather than doctrine and history as at other times, we want to see his individual work in each of the stones that he brought together to form this church. What has he done in our individual lives to save us, form us, and put us together? It's a lot of work. And it's wonderful work. Mm -hmm. There's a craftsman. There's a mason involved. And that's a capital M. Because it's God who wrought in stone for us and our Savior. I'll show you. We're going to share personal testimonies of all he's wrought in our lives. What exclamatory praise we have in this text. To rot is to work into shape. When you rot, he wrought that statue. We don't use the word as often as they used to, and it's found in the Bible a number of times. But to rot is to work, to work into shape, to create something, to construct something, to fashion it, form it, make it, mold it, or shape it. Has God constructed something? Has he worked something? Has he shaped us, formed us, and fit us, and molded us into the church we are today? Ephesians 2.10, you know, we, we have wanted in the past, the ancient past, to go to Ephesians, the first three verses, to prove that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and you hath he quickened. Well, that's nice. But once regeneration is over, there's a purpose for regeneration, and it's in verse 10. For we are his, his what? His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has set the purpose and the destiny of our church in the New Testament scriptures. And he has regenerated us for a purpose. And we are his workmanship. He has wrought to put this church together. He has created. He has formed, shaped, constructed, and fit us together. We're his workmanship. We're together in this church by his will and for his work. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18. A verse I never want you to forget, especially today. It'll be read a few times. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18. Here's the church at Corinth being described in 16 verses under the simile of a body, a physical body and its parts and how all the parts work together. But we want verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. 
When God created the first body from the dust of the earth and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, Adam had a perfect body. God said that it was good and very good. And so the verse is true of that because the Apostle Paul here is making a comparison between a physical body and the body of the church. But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. A physical human body has all the members God wanted it to have, and it is a beautiful machine. It is a beautiful thing to behold when it's in shape and it's trained to do something. It can do it and do it well. But the real use and application of this verse is what's in a church. Because a church is a body, and it says way back as early as verse 14, and it says it in 12, but I'll take 14 because it's short. For the body is not one member, but many. The body doesn't have just one part. It has lots of parts, and those parts are put there by God according to his pleasure. Right. And so if you don't like a member of this church, then you don't like a leg. So why don't we meet in the parking lot afterwards, and I'll get a chainsaw, and we'll make your body better. Because God's put every member in the body as it hath pleased him. He didn't ask you if it would please you. You say, well, what about those that we exclude? Oh, the Lord tells us we've got cancer. And so he says, cut it out so it won't affect the rest of your body. And I'll cause it to replenish itself. And oh, has he ever done that? And trust me, you're not going to hear amen before I touch on that point. Because it's one of the things that we have done and God's been faithful for 38 years to reward us for being faithful that way and being faithful quickly that way. Our church is a temple, brethren. Look at 1 Timothy 3.15. Well, that, that verse says it's the house of God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's the house of God. And what is the house of God? It's the temple of God. Solomon called it a house. Solomon called it a temple because it doesn't matter. It's just the place where God was worshipped. And we're the place where God is worshipped. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was the wise master builder. What are you doing if you're a master builder? You're a general contractor for what? An edifice, a building. Something's going up. Something's being put together. Stones are coming together and being wrought and fit. Stones have to be chipped, cut, formed, shaped. And the Bible talks about it to fit them together. It's quite a chore. It's not like grabbing your skill saw. Is that still a company these days? Skill with one L? Okay. It's not grabbing your skill saw and cutting two feet off a 10-foot two-by-four. To form a stone to build a temple is a lot more work. But Paul was the wise master builder. He laid the foundation, but he warned in verse 10, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And you know that we're careful about how we build on what Paul laid. And Paul laid the foundation in verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build, and these are ministerial verses, upon this foundation that I've laid, if you take Jesus Christ and add to him wood, hay, or stubble, it's going to be burned up. But if you add to it gold, silver, and precious stones, it will abide, and you'll be honored and rewarded. And it goes on down to say in verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. That is addressed to a church. It's chapter 6 that says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is the church is the temple of God. That's 1 Timothy 3. We can go to 2 Corinthians 6. We could go to, let's go to Ephesians 2. 
Ephesians 2, what hath God wrought? And right now I'm working that word wrought, meaning what work has he done to shape something for his use? And he has wrought on all of you. Was he rotting on us? Was he rotting us when we were in our mother's wombs? John the Baptist, he did. The unborn child was full of the Holy Ghost. And what was he doing? Kneeling and clasping his hands? Leaping for joy. Because that's what the Holy Ghost leads to. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to fast. But John the Baptist wasn't mourning or fasting because... Jesus was about to be born. Amen. And his mother was standing in his presence, which means that he was there in very small form. Right. Fantastic. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go run down to the last few verses. Verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, that's us Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints Amen. and of the household of God. There's a house, there's a household, and there's a family that lives in the house. And the family is the family of God. It's in chapter 3 of this same epistle. Verse 20, and are built upon the... Built! Our church is built. Who built us? God built us. Paul laid the foundation and God built us by adding to us those members that pleased him. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom? In Jesus all the building fitly framed together, fitly framed. How, does it, how do all those stones get fitly framed together but by God's providential dealings and grace in our lives and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the changing of our lives by the Word of God? Yes. Fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, Amen. in whom ye also at Ephesus are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. It's where God lives. It's where God dwells. It's why it's called the house of God in Ephesians chapter 2. And we could go to other places to continue to prove the point, but it's been made before. Look at 1 Kings 15 with me and see what it takes to build a temple. Some of you have worked in stonework. You know what I'm talking about. As a, as a teenager, I helped a mason chip stones, split stones, carry stones, set stones, for big, beautiful field stone fireplaces. And we didn't buy that cheap junk that they sell now at lumber yards. It's about one or two inches thick that they've probably made in some machine someplace. They were real stones. Right. Push them around with trucks. Haul them around with trucks. First Kings 15. Look at this. Well, not, I don't want chapter 15. I want chapter 5. 1 Kings 5, Solomon is building the temple of the Lord, and they need stones. So they've got to have men to work in stone. And we have to have someone work in stone. God does the stone work, and he gives us some work to do with each other, to make some little chiseling on each other, to help us polish ourselves up and be more fit stones for the glory of God. 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 15. And Solomon had threescore and ten thousand, that is seventy thousand, that bear burdens, and fourscore thousand hewers in the mountains. Eighty thousand hewers of stone. 
Was there any stone involved in the temple of Solomon? 80,000 hewers of stone. Verse 16, beside the chief of Solomon's officers, which were over the work, 3,300, which ruled over the people that wrought in the work. Wrought in the work of building a temple. And the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, and hewed stones to lay the foundation of the house. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the stone squarers. Ever tried sticking a, a round stone in a square hole and see how it fits? This is just beautiful in the word of God. So they prepared timber and stones to build the house. And this is Solomon building the temple. But we're the temple. And we're stones. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's other references about stone squarers and masons and, and hewers and those that wrought in stone in the Bible. But let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 to remind ourselves that we're a temple made of stone. And we're lively stones ourselves. And we have a chief cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. And that's what counts. Chosen of God. What kind of a stone is it? A precious stone. Is it a costly stone? That by the price of his own blood, he purchased our redemption. Amen. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. The whole foundation runs out from him. And we are built upon him being the chief cornerstone and the foundation being the, the prophets and the apostles of the living God. And we are wall stones built up on that foundation with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Amen. To whom coming as unto a living stone, he's a living stone because we're speaking about living persons. He's our priest. He's, he lives forever. As the priest after the order of Melchizedek, disallowed indeed of men. It is true that the Jews rejected him, killed him, crucified him, and locked him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead because he was chosen of God and he was precious. Right. Ye also, just like that, ye also, as lively stones, were made alive by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost, are built up a spiritual house, built up. Notice all these words in the Bible. God wants us to see this picture. And that's what we're celebrating today. What has he done with us? He's taken us from the east, west, north, and south and put us together. He's regenerated us at different times, converted us at different times, converted us different ways, and fit us together into the body that we are today. Right. And every single stone's important. If you take a stone out before it's supposed to be taken out, the wall is weakened. When the stone is a bad stone, we take it out and the Lord replaces it with another stone. And he's done it and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I love him for that. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We have a temple. We have a house. We can offer sacrifices. We're doing it right now. We're going to do it in the second assembly. And they're made acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You don't need a Levitical priest because you're a king and priest. You're better than anything the Old Testament ever had. You're a king and you're a priest in your own right through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we get to offer up sacrifices of praise. That is the fruit of our lips giving praise to his name. And it's made acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We can move heaven today with praise of the Son of God. Amen. 
The angels rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents. What are they going to do when they hear 50 men tell about their repentance? And all the amens that are going to follow those testimonies. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Out of Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16 comes that verse right there. I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, God chose him, precious. He is of the greatest value, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. There's no confounding in our church because we're a temple of God built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We cannot be harmed. You know, the apostles took the Lord Jesus Christ and showed him the temple and said, look at these huge stones. And Jesus said, they're all going to be torn apart. Those stones didn't mean anything to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were impressive. By the time Herod got done with the temple, how many years was he in the building of it? 46 years. I thought Zerubbabel built it. Oh, Zerubbabel built a little cottage. Herod is the one that made that little cottage great. Zerubbabel did the best he could with what he had, but God didn't care. Remember, God said to Zerubbabel, all the silver and all the gold is mine. You don't need to have any of it in there, and I don't care that it's small, because I'm going to bring glory to this house. The desire of all nations is going to visit this house, and in this place, he's going to make peace. And so it was far better, but Herod had made it great, and so the apostles, even after three and a half years with the Lord, Lord, look at these stones! They thought differently after Pentecost. Because I'm reading after Pentecost, and what stones are he talking about now? The stones in the churches of Jesus Christ. In all the epistles, all the building, the edifice. Remember what the word edify means? To build up. What is an edifice? A structure, a building. There's so many terms in the Bible about what God has done with our church. Our church is a temple of God. Our temple is made up of individual stones. We, we are the edifice. We're supposed to be edifying each other and building each other up to fill out the house of God. This is what he wants. He established it. He sent Jesus Christ. He ordained prophets and apostles. And he chose each of us and converted us and brought us together. God carefully chose, crafted, shaped, and placed in a wall every one of us. As we read in 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen, And the Lord added to the church... Daily, such as should be saved. Who added them to the church? The Lord added them to the church. Daily, such as should be saved. He elects, justifies, regenerates, and converts us to be his loving children for his temple. The long chain of related events, often called dots in our congregation, is marvelous for us to consider. We're going to be hearing about it. A temple made of lively stones is an organism. It is not an organization. That's why there is so much emphasis of a spiritual house. Because we worship in spirit and in truth. We worship internally. We worship with our minds. We worship with our hearts. It's a spiritual house. And it's an organism. It's living because the Holy Spirit of God is in us as a church. Every body part is necessary for our church as much as every body part is necessary for an athlete. If you take away a body part of an athlete, he's going to be hindered in his performance. Body parts vary in function and appearance, but they're all needed. 1 Corinthians 12 states it so clearly that the hand, because it's not the eye, can't say, I don't need you. A hand is worthless without an eye to direct it. It's just going to be going around clutching at stuff, clutching at air, because it won't know what to lay hold of. 
It all works together. Right. And the Lord put all those parts together. You know, when Adam popped out of the dust of the earth, he was one impressive specimen. And God said he was very good. But he had all those different parts. And together, they make a wonderful thing. And a church is to be compared to them. And it's all by the grace of God. Amen. The Bible has fabulous examples of God choosing individual stones for his temple. How about Moses? A baby born out of due season when it was not, it was not quite healthy, healthful, to have a baby then. And so they floated the little guy on a river in Egypt. But the Lord take care of him? Was he a decent addition to the church of God of the Old Testament? How about Samson? That woman hadn't had any children, but she had one. Did he have a little strength? Just think of Samuel. His mother, hadn't, his mother was barren. Samuel was great, one of the five great men that the Lord tells us about. How about David, the youngest son of Jesse? Jesse and his wife just kept trying, just kept trying. Number one ain't good enough. Two, four, six, seven, number eight. Oh, here he is, God's chosen one. How about the Ethiopian eunuch? God chased him down in the desert with Philip. We know all these stories. The Lord found individual souls and put them in his churches. How about Cornelius? You know, Cornelius, we usually focus on Acts 10. If you're doing an exhaustive study on Cornelius, you go to chapter 11, where Peter had to answer for preaching and baptizing Gentiles to the church at Jerusalem. Or we go to Acts 15, where it's referred to again at the Council of Jerusalem. Is that where you usually stop if you're doing an exhaustive study? But do you know that there's a chapter like Acts 21 where the Apostle Paul went to a place called Caesarea? What was there? A church full of disciples in Caesarea. Who was in Caesarea? Cornelius. The Lord raises up men and puts them in churches. We don't know that he was a minister. He doesn't have to be. His whole household came out with him to hear the gospel and his household was baptized with him and some of his soldiers and domestics because the Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 10. Each soul that God brings to our church by whatever means should light up your heart. Thus every contact that we meet by whatever means is important to us. Our evangelistic mantra is one soul at a time because of the Bible emphasis on one soul at a time. God's stonework is marvelous. He chose and prepared the Lord Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone. Amen. Jesus told the Pharisees of his day, quoting from Scripture again, because it is Isaiah 28, 16, it is Psalm 118 and verse 22 that says that Jesus Christ, the stone of God, was rejected by the builders. What builders? Earthly builders rejected that stone as not being good enough for the kingdom they wanted. And so that stone, when he stood in their presence, said, this stone will grind you to powder. Because God took that stone and made something marvelous out of it, and we're part of it, and we're one of them, one of the churches of Jesus Christ. God raised that stone from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 4. As the apostles spoke to the Jews... We're a temple, brethren. We're stones in a temple. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The foundation runs out from him on the prophets and apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're wall stones. 
but we're fit together beautifully. We've been crafted, shaped, formed, molded into what we have today. And I want us in our 38th year to thank the Lord and bless him for what he's formed with our church and all the lively stones that he's put together here. Each one of you, as the Lord brought you to us, there's a story behind it. It's a wonderful story. It deserves more than 60 seconds. But we're going for breath today because we want as many stones as possible that make up the edifice of our church. And they're wonderful symbols and results of God's grace. Acts chapter 4, the apostles in front of the Jews. Verse 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders. Now this is a different Peter. He sounds different to me. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so look at Peter go, because it's the day of Pentecost and after. It's the next day after Pentecost, and he's full of the Holy Ghost. You know, the Lord puts us together, and then he puts his spirit in the house. Solomon had those 80,000 men in the mountains hewing stones, had those stones hauled, hauled to Jerusalem, which was on a mountain of its own, on seven mountains, had those stones hauled to the top of Mount Moriah to form the foundation to build up that temple. A tremendous operation. And the Lord's done something here as well. Tremendous what he's done. And we want to thank him for it, to be part of it. Our temple is made of individual stones, and we can see them in the Bible, and we can see them by looking around us today. God's stonework is marvelous. He prepares pastors with new hearts and teaches them to fight. Saul of Benjamin, Saul the son of Kish, was a timid person, not fit to be the king of Israel. But God gave him a new heart, turned him into a new man, and he prophesied. But then because he wanted to disobey, even after that blessing, he lost the dynasty of Israel. He could have had what David had, but he lost it all. God knew he was going to lose it and replaced him with David. In Psalm 144, David said, The Lord teaches my fingers to fight, my hands to war. David was a man of peace. David loved to write poetry, draw blueprints for buildings, raise money, set the courses of the priests as to who was going to sing and who was going to play at various times, day and night. That was all the stuff David enjoyed doing. But when David had to fight, David knew how to fight, and the Lord taught him how to do that in Psalm 144 which is one of the psalms of our church's history, that we don't like strange children and we don't want them here, and Lord, rid us of strange children. Right. In Ephesians chapter 4, Jesus Christ ascended up to, into heaven and gave gifts to men. The apostle Paul said, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, that is, separated him from before birth to the ministry of the apostleship, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to be an apostle, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. There, that, what a tremendous change in the Apostle Paul's life. From Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul, for our benefit. Our benefit. 
He opened the heart of Lydia. Is that, is that stonework? Is it really stonework? He opened the heart of Lydia. Is it really stonework? When he opens the heart of a person, did Lydia respond well? Was she baptized? Did she then say, I want all of you apostolic body of ministers that have come out with the Apostle Paul to stay at my house? Did she say that in the next verse? She did. Does the Bible say that God takes away our stony heart and gives us a heart of flesh? It's stonework. Thank you, Lord. How do we want our girls to grow up in this church? Polished corner stones in the palace of our God. We also have stonework to do, and you've been taught all these things before. You've been taught one another duties. Those one another duties are to help perfect the stones of our church. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm just about done because we are going to stay on schedule today. And as long as you know that your stones and that God wrought you for this church, he chipped you, cut you, molded you, shaped you, formed you, and brought you, and fit you into this body by his grace, by his ministry, by his word, by his spirit, then we'll have set the stage for what we're going to hear is how God wrought on each individual stone. We're going to have courses just like David. I've got courses of 10. We're going to have five courses of 10 by God's grace. For those of you that haven't let me know that you want to participate, I hope that you will certainly participate and join in the latter courses. But we have five courses, and we're going to go ten at a time, and we're going to to let the Lord know that we appreciate his stonework in each of our lives. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider one another. Stones? Stones? Let's look around and, and make sure that we observe each other's stone. Let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and to good works. That's what we're supposed to do as a church. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. That stonework that we each have for each other, many other verses could be read on that point. You cannot join this church without being taught these things and committing to them, because it's something the Lord has taught us that we didn't understand in the early days, because we hadn't seen it, hadn't heard it, and weren't taught it. But it's one of the it's why we have a church. Right. God could meet with us individually, God could get us the scriptures individually. Now you can go to a dollar store and buy yourself a Bible for just a buck, and you could take your buck Bible home and you could read it yourself, and you could have your own little church at home. But that isn't what God's ordained, because Christianity in the local church is a team sport. There is no I in team. It's, all, it's about each other and about holding each other together in the body and building of God's house. God has replaced stones. It's his work, and it's our joint work with him. He shows it to us. He tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, there must be heresies among you. There must be. I'm just waiting for the next one. I'm ready. We have people in waiting to replace you. If it's anyone here that wants to leave... Go ahead. We won't miss you. We'll get better the minute you leave. There must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest. And you brethren that are still here have been approved many times through many heresies. And the Lord's been very kind to us that way. 
He shows them to us and we put them out where he judges them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's how we get rid of strange children. We pray for it and we respond to public sin. We respond to heresy. We respond to scorners. We respond to fools. We respond to those that don't want to do things God's way. And so he's blessed us mercifully. And the comparisons are marvelous to consider. The improvement in beauty and quality of our church is phenomenal by doing things his way and doing them quickly. Our examples of exchanging belly worshipers for spiritual zealots is fabulous. It's wonderful. The Bible has fabulous examples of them as well. David for Saul. Who do you want, Saul? Because he was 7'6"? Or David? I'd take David to one million Sauls. Say, what if it was your wife? I'd still take David. You're a fool for even saying that. Don't say it. David was so far the superior to Saul. The man after God's own heart, God's favorite compared to Saul, that profane man. How about Zadok for Abiathar? Do you even know who Zadok is? The high priest of David and Solomon, replacing the whole household of Eli because that household didn't deserve to live. Why? Because that father didn't punish his children the way he should have. Benaiah for Joab. Matthias or Paul for Judas Iscariot. Silas for Barnabas. Timothy for Demas. The Bible's full of those stories and we have them ourselves. Our temple is all about him. We don't need gold and silver. We don't need a fancy building. All we need is the Lord Jesus Christ preeminent here. And that gives our house greater glory than any church ever built on earth. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that and teaching us that. You know, in our church, we're blood brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no Greek. There is no Jew. There is no Scythian. There is no bond. There is no free. There's no male. There's no female. In Christ, we're all the same. We have obeyed and God has fulfilled his promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, If you'll separate from evil and not touch the unclean thing, I will come to you, I will dwell with you, I will be your God, ye shall be my people. Seven promises. He has fulfilled them to us this day. Because we have sought to draw a line in the sand, if you will, on many points. To stand in the word of God, we don't care who or how many oppose us. By the grace of God. What's the future hold for us? When we look back at the past and we look at our 38 years, we have to say, what hath God wrought? What does the future hold? If we will love him and we will obey him more, unknown, unprecedented blessings will come. I have just taught you by the timing of our God from John chapter 14 that if a man will love me and keep my words, we will come to him and make our abode with him and my father will love him and I will love him. We can know the grace of God in a greater degree and greater depth and greater breadth and all the heights and and dimensions, I mean, of the love of Christ for us until we're filled with all the fullness of God. And then we'll say again, what hath God wrought? If 10 years from now we're having an assembly like this, let us be able to look back and say it was good in 2018, but it is better in 2028. May God make that happen in this church. Amen.